is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mildred DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandal. Hi, this is Libra Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 113. I am your host, Dustin, and today I have with me... This is recently dumped Bachelor Donovan. This is Fresh in the Market, Joe. And this is Pineapple Salad Eating Stella. And we are bringing you the news and comic book reviews from March 17th through March 30th. We have a total of four books that we will be covering on this episode, including Batman Beyond. And we have a little bit of news to cover, including the events that took place at WonderCon. So, if you are listening to this, we have a bunch of stuff to get into. Also, if you're listening to this, be sure to check back in a week from now to check for the .5 episode for all the other books from the months of March as well that we have not covered on the normal podcast. Those will be covered on the .5 podcast. So without further ado, let's get straight into comic news. There is a number of different news articles that we have posted up on the website, but unfortunately a lot of them have kind of been repeated news of what we've already seen. There was an article on March 19th with Grant Morrison talking about Batman Incorporated. IGN, Newsarama, and Comic Book Resources all talked to Grant Morrison about Batman Incorporated, including the events of what was to come, as well as the events that happened in Batman Incorporated number 8. But most of it we've already heard in the past. And it pretty much could all be summed up by an article that was posted on DC's website the day before Batman Incorporated number 8 came out. So that, those were kind of useless articles. On March 21st, Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiotti sat down with Comic Vine and they talked about the new Batwing that is set to appear in Batwing this month with issue number 19. We will obviously be talking more about Batwing over on the Point Five podcast and in general, a lot of the news related to the characters that are appearing in the books, including Batwoman, Catwoman, Batwing, those characters, we'll be talking a lot more about the news on the other ones. But needless to say, just real quickly, there's a new Batwing coming. Clearly, DC wants a completely different change. They want to shake up with this book. Uh, and my guess is because the book's not hasn't been doing very well since the New 52 launched. And they're trying to figure out a different way to get it. So Justin Gray and Jim Palmiotti, they basically pitched an idea of, well, how about we just have an entirely new Batwing? So that's what's about to happen. It's not going to be David anymore? Nope. Really? I mean, is this a guess of you or is it like... No, it's it's it literally says it in the interview. No! Not David. He was my favorite one. This will be this will be interesting, actually. I... I... I've kind of, since we dropped Batwing from the main books, it's been hard for me to kind of keep up. I hope the way he goes out is dignified. I'll say that because DC does not have a good track record with his black characters as of late. I don't really like this. You know, I, I've not been keeping up with Batwing now that we've dropped it. It's just one less thing that I don't have to worry about. But uh, I actually enjoyed the book and I enjoyed the character. And DC wanted to put something out there that was different. And they were all for this particular character. And they were, you know, when New 52 finally came around so to see that they're dumping back on this like they're getting rid of him and trying something new which is probably going to be some sort of old tired idea that's probably just some sort of white guy that 
Looks like Bruce Wayne. Well, that's great, DC. Thanks for telling us you're going to be creative and then going back on that. Thanks. Without jumping the gun, we have no idea who's under the mask yet, so there's just an assumption that we're making on this point, but we don't know exactly what's going to happen. According to the interview, it does say that the character will still be based in Africa, and really the only changes is that it's not going to be David, and it's and Matu is not no longer going to be another character that they're going to focus on as he was concentrated on because his of his relationship with David. The whole idea of this new Batwing is that it's somebody we, we probably haven't seen or it's someone we have seen, and they're just changing the role. The more interesting fact in my mind is the fact that the Batwing that they had in this book, even though you, we would all assume that this Batwing is the same Batwing that was in Batman Incorporated, it never was the same one. So maybe the Batwing who actually takes the place is the Batwing who was in Batman Incorporated. All right, so then next up, March 21st, there was an article on Comic Vine with Kyle Higgins talking about Tony Zuko resurfacing in Chicago and Dick moving to, basically moving his base to Chicago. We'll talk more about Tony Zuko popping back up in Nightwing when we get to the Nightwing number 18. But most of the interview just talks about why, you know, what he has going for him in Chicago, why he goes to Chicago, how it specifically deals with Tony Zuko. And then in turn, it also mentions that he has next to nothing in his, as far as he has literally no money and he has, he barely has enough equipment to make by. So it'll be interesting to see how exactly this works if he is going to have to call, I guess, Daddy Wayne Bucks to get some money. <laughs> you stretch for that one. I, I, I how is he gonna, I'm, I'm interested to see how Dick Grayson has zero money considering, you know, his connection with Bruce Wayne. That, that never seems like a very, unless he completely, like, chooses to divorce himself from Bruce, that never seems like a very likely scenario. So, uh, I'm interested to see, see how that happens. Yeah, and he doesn't seem so adamant to diss himself from Bruce as to be, oh, I'm so independent, I don't need you for anything. Unless, of course, death of the family is coming into it again. All right, so then, also on March 21st, there was an interview with Scott Snyder. He sat down with Comics Alliance to talk about Zero Year. There's just a couple little bits that we're going to reference, because this is a ridiculously long interview. And I, I when I say we only posted three questions of this interview, it still takes up a page and a half worth of text because one of the answers was so incredibly large. But one specific question that was posed to Scott Snyder was, so does that intimidate you to take on Batman's origin story if that's what Zero Year is? And he responded, I'll be totally frank with you. We've sort of danced around it, but it is the origin story. It goes back to show how Bruce became Batman in the New 52 continuity. I'm incredibly intimidated, incredibly nervous, and have had horrible sleepless nights and panic attacks about it already, I promise you. But the reason I'm doing it, again, to be totally straight, is that I wanted to do an early years story that was really different. I had an idea for one of those that would just cut away from what you've seen before before I was even doing the number zero issue. The number zero issue gave me the chance to do it a little bit in a world I sort of wanted to create, and it was definitely the quietest moment in the story that I had in mind, but would give you a window into see how people liked it. I really fell in love with it, that world there, and I started thinking about doing another earlier story after I did Joker and after Damien died. So he clearly states that this is the origin story for New 52. He then goes on to say 
that there's something very cautious about. I don't want to do a story that's treading on stuff you've seen, but to do something that even though I know in my heart, dude, I can't write something as good as year one, it's not going to happen. It's a effing master, masterpiece. I write it over and over. I teach a class on it every year, and each year I find something new that I love about that book. But if I approach the Joker that way and say, I'm never going to write something as good as a killing joke, so I won't do a big Joker story, or I'm never going to write something as good as year one, so I'm not going to touch Bruce's earliers, then I feel like I wouldn't have done anything I was excited about on the book. So then he also then goes on to promise us on his kids' lives that this is the best story he's ever come up with, which we've heard time and time again. Not that I, I, I don't want to make it sound like I am not looking forward to the story because I am looking forward to the story. But at the same time, these lengthy interviews, in my opinion, dig the hole that could possibly be the, the hole that the story goes into if it doesn't turn out to be really good. I quite honestly did not enjoy Death of the Family, but the way that was hyped up, the way this is being hyped up, it can only lead you to believe it's going to be that good. And if it doesn't deliver, you know, not just as a whole to the fan community, but me as a reader, me as a singular reader, if I read the story and not, you know, completely blown away by the story, these interviews only just dig the hole deeper for what he's going to do in the future. And that's not to say I don't have faith in what he can do. It's just I don't like the fact that he sits here and says, this is the very best story I can write. You know, I'm I'm going to do this. This is the best thing I can do. I promise you I'm on my kids. You know, I mean, that's a little overboard. You don't have to go that crazy overboard because when you do do that, then you are digging yourself a hole if it's really, really not what people want. Yeah, we talked about this last episode in that, you know, this is because Scott Snyder kind of didn't really ingratiate this with that, that any of Death and Family. Doesn't necessarily mean that every time he makes a story, you know, is automatically is that disappointing. But at the same time, it kind of showed the chinks in his, in his armor. So I don't think we ever were, but even if we were, we are certainly not really like, you know, everything Scott Snyder touches turns to gold anymore. And personally, every time somebody touches the origin of Batman, and says, you know, this is going to be something, something new or what you haven't seen or my take on it. I am very hesitant just because that ends up not being the case and it ends up being redundant. I'm sure it's going to be real well written. I don't, I don't, I can't see anything not being well written. You know, it's one thing to be disappointed, but it's another thing not to be well written. I am hesitant because of this, because of its origin, uh, to it. And because Scott Snyder is promising that this is going to be the greatest thing ever, that's probably one thing you shouldn't do. You know, I, I am cautiously optimistic, but. I will, I, I got, I got to try to tell ourselves that like, you know, this is not going to be like, you know, the worst thing ever. It's not going to be the best thing if you just try to enjoy it for what it is. Yeah. I think moving on from last month where I, I know I was definitely a bit, I think I said the wrong word, but you know, like annoyed by the end of death, the family. And I was, I was a bit anti Snyder, but as Don was saying last episode and I do listen to all our old episodes because sometimes I want to feel close to Don and his voice soothes me. So I was listening to <laughs> what the hell? I was listening to all the points he made about Snyder and saying, you know, we're being a bit harsh on him and I think we probably were I've definitely calmed down a bit in my reaction to him. So I think if this is this is kind of what if what he's saying in this interview is what he does, it's kind of what I was saying I wanted from when it was announced last month in that it's an origin for the new fifty two. And if it's 
done well, and because I think Snyder does occasionally have issues with change, actually changing things. He'll sometimes put things in, but it's very ambiguous. If this is a definitive, like, yeah, all right, I'm sorry, I know I said everything happened before. If you know, if it's honest, and he just says like, for the new Fifty Two, this can't have happened. This is now the origin. Then I'll, I'll be more willing to accept it than. Oh, you know, everything's happened except this couldn't, uh, this doesn't work with that. How does that happen? Or, you know, like, or this isn't an origin story and he says it is, or, you know, I just want it. If this is the new 52 and, you know, we're in the new 52 now and it's not going to go away. If this is now going to be the new origin story, then I'm willing to accept it. I just want it to be written well <laughs> and confidently. And I'm sure it will be written well, but I, I just want it to be written with the confidence to say, right, this is what it is now. So either get on board with it or go back and read the old stuff. You know, when did we, didn't we just talk about this? Here's my issue. feels like you're trying to defend yourself right now and nothing has even come out yet. So apparently there's probably some sort of uproar that people are upset about and you got to come back and defend yourself and explain what you're doing. Hey, my argument still stands. We saw Origins in issue number zero. So I don't know why we're seeing this again. How many people don't know the origin of Batman? Well, I guess we're going to hear it again. Hey, how many characters have we not seen in the new 52? But wait, let's, let's waste some page numbers on, uh, on Batman's origin again. Sounds like a great idea. Did he say that the zero issue was going to be playing into this? Yes. Cool. The Zero issue is uh, supposed... If you remember the way Batman number Zero played out, it was a story that kind of felt like it was in the middle of something. It was after Bruce Wayne already came back. You know, they showed him using one of the gadgets for the first time, and it showed that entire thing with him trying to deal with the Red Hood gang, but then it ended very abruptly. Yeah. My thing is, he says in this interview he specifically did the Zero issue throwing it out there, seeing how people took it to really confirm whether or not he was going to be able to do an, a, an earlier story based off of the reception from the Zero Issue. I don't remember the Zero Issue getting that high of marks, number one. Number two, the story ended very abruptly. The Red Hood gang was outside of the, the Wayne apartment building or whatever, and they were going to blow it up. That was the end. You it left, And it said it, to and, be continued, I'm pretty yeah, sure. It, it, so, that's the thing. It's Clearly, this was not something that he was waiting to see from the reception of the Zero Issue. And that's that's my problem, is that it clearly said to be continued. We knew something was going to happen afterwards, regardless of what it was. In my opinion, when I read that it was to be continued, I thought it was going to play into something with Death of the Family, because we know the history of the, the Joker with the Red Hood Gang, and that's what I thought. When it didn't, it was kind of like, okay, so... That just left their, left their hanging. Think about it. It will almost be a year since that zero issue came out that this zero year story is happening. Almost, yeah. So to me, it's extremely hard to believe that he was waiting for some kind of acceptance from the fans with the zero issue in order to confirm whether or not he was going to do it if it had to be continued and it ended the way it did. I don't know if I'm really up for like, uh, trying to figure out any sort of like you know inconsistencies with when he was trying to do the story mostly because i don't care but um i do i will say that like that zero issue in and of itself it was it was fine i mean i, I like the idea that bruce was trying to infiltrate the red hood game that, that to me doesn't mess with continuity all that much so i'm those kind of stories are if snyder actually is telling those kind of stories which really don't 
fudge with continuity and those are stories you can kind of imagine Bruce doing, then I'm on board. You know, if they're more like that issue, I'm actually I'm actually on board for this. You know, it wasn't the greatest thing ever, but it was it was solid. It was it was good stuff. So uh that's the kind of stuff that that would be interesting to me. I get it now because it was issue zero and now it's a whole year of issue zero. <laughs> derpa, derpa, derpa. <laughs> Uh, he's a clever one, that Mr. Snyder. But uh, this sounds a little bit misleading to say, yeah, I didn't have this planned out. Maybe he didn't. Maybe if it did totally bomb, he'd just f- sweep it under the carpet and we'd all be questioning where did that ever go. Same as we're questioning when the Riddler's going to turn up because he was saying that. So unless it was just that small cameo in the backup of Batman, whatever number that issue was, then I'm still looking forward to that Riddler storyline, unless that was just to mislead us until this stand up. Alright, so moving along, the next news we have on March 22nd, DC announced that they are going to have a Batman 1966 digital comic series that will release (laughs) beginning this summer. The specific announcement said that they were expanding their digital line, but I have a hard time believing that they're expanding the digital line since I don't feel as if they're going to continue to do Batman Arkham City digital series forever. I thought that that was going to be replaced by Injustice, Gods Among Us, when they started that one, but that didn't happen. At this point, I don't know if they're expanding it for sure, or if it's really just going to be taking the place of another one of their digital books, because I haven't actually heard that much about the uh, Amikami Girls series either, even though I know it is still coming out. I haven't heard that much about it, so I don't know if this is actually going to be an additional book that's coming out digitally first, and then collected, printed as all the digital first series are right now, or if it's taking the place of one of them. But nonetheless, they've already released some of the art. It's completely 60s-style art, very 60-esque, I guess the best way. I look at this art, and I I think of Andy Warhol right off the bat because of some of the ways that some of it's done. But some of the art is on the website. We know right now that the book will be written by Jeff Parker and illustrated by Jonathan Case and it will be coming out this summer. We obviously will not be covering that on this podcast, or probably not on the Point Five podcast either, but we most likely will be trying to get someone to review that Digital First series as it releases. So if you're a 1960s Batman fan and you are interested, mark your calendars for the release and send us an email saying you're interested in reviewing that series. If it's good, we'll review it. <laughs> I actually really like the look of the art. It looks really good. I love that they've still got Cesar Romero's moustache hidden under the, the makeup on the drawing of the Joker. I, I like the pop art style. I think it, it works well and some of the images look really nice, particularly the Catwoman one. This actually looks, looks really fun. It would have been interesting to see if they'd done it in a 60s style as in terms of what the actual comics looked like at that time, but I think this is more visually appealing. I think this could be a lot of fun. Is it just me, or does uh, Robin look like a complete dork? Oh, you mean like you mean he didn't always different uh, from the anime, from the original yeah. series? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty dead on with the original series. He just it just reiterates that thought in my mind that he's just a complete dork. Boy, wonder I love you. 
All right. So then, moving into the news that comes out that came out of WonderCon on March 29th, IGN announced that there will be a new creative team coming to Batman Beyond Unlimited this summer, along with Justice League Beyond. Adam Beechin and Norm Brayfield will be leaving the series, and Kyle Higgins will be taking over as the writer, and Tony Silas will be taking over as the artist. One of the more interesting news bits that came out of this actual article was not so much about the new creative team, but in fact, before the new creative team takes over, writer Scott Scott Peterson and artist Annie Wu will introduce the future Batgirl, who's said to have a good working relationship with Commissioner Barbara Gordon in her own story arc in July. So the story arc for Batman Beyond in July is actually entitled Batgirl Beyond, so I'm thinking that's probably going to be pretty good. I'm a bit disappointed that Norm Brayfield was off, because I, I just like seeing him get work. Um, I actually found out about that on his Facebook page. I'll probably talk about it a little bit later. Anyway, it sounds interesting. I'm looking forward to it. It'll be interesting to see what a Batgirl Beyond would look like in that continuity. And, well, I think it's great that, you know, she's going to have a relationship with Barbara. I wonder if Barbara's going to be hesitant at first, because that's how she was with Terry. She didn't really want him to be Batman. And secondly, I am wondering if this Batgirl is going to be Dana, given what how this issue ends that we're about to review. Alright, so then the other news out of WonderCon on Friday, there was a panel that was called Batman Zero Year Panel. The people who attended the panel were Scott Snyder, James Tinian IV, and Sean Murphy. Sean Murphy specifically is known for his work with Scott Snyder on uh, American Vampire, but he also was announced that he's going to be doing some of the covers for the new creative team for Batman Beyond Unlimited. But the most interesting thing about this was the fact that it was called Batman Zero Year. It was a panel. Basically, there was not a whole lot of information that was really revealed that we already hadn't been revealed as far as the they showed off the cover to Batman number 22, which was revealed earlier in the week, so that really wasn't a big surprise. In addition to that, James Tinian, who... Even though he's working on Talon, Red Hood, and the Outlaws, as well as the backups in Batman and Detective Comics currently, he talked about the fact that Bane is going to be making an appearance in Talon, but we already knew that because the cover, the gatefold cover, revealed that Bane was going to be in Talon on Tuesday, so that really was, again, not really new news. He didn't talk about Red Hood and the Outlaws, and Scott Snyder ended up talking about a number of other projects that had nothing to do with Batman or Batman Year One, including his upcoming Superman Unchained series with Jim Lee and some of his work on Vertigo. So, quite honestly, the panel probably should have been a Scott Snyder, you know, DC Spotlight Scott Snyder instead of a Batman Year One panel, because quite honestly, if you don't get a whole lot of news about Batman and your main focus of the panel is focusing on work by Scott Snyder, that's not the Batman panel. All I can hope is that by the time C2E2 rolls around in a couple weeks, that isn't the case with the Batman panel that they most likely will have, because that would be a huge disappointment for me who is attending that. Alright, so that is all the news that we have for this episode. Let's get straight into our books, and the very first book we'll be covering is Nightwing number 18. Written by Kyle Higgins, art by Juan Jose Rip. 
the issue starts off with sort of a flashback, kind of also kind of a continuation of the last issue where we see Damien talking to Dick and telling him just because you trust people doesn't mean that's, that's something you should stop doing. We then see Dick visiting the grave of what appears to be his own parents, even though the, the grave is not actually marked with any names. We then see him sitting at his apartment in a slew of fast food containers and empty pop cans, and he gets a phone call from Sonya Branch. He lets it go to the voicemail. As he picks up the voicemail and listens to it, she basically says, listen, if, there's, if you want to talk, call me, blah, blah, blah. He then gets a package delivered, which is the Swordwalkers video game that Damien mentioned that they should play together in the previous issue. We then see a flashback back to that exact same mention, where he takes the phone then and throws it at the wall. He then, with his unshaven face and looking like he is on a binge, goes and sees Sonya Branch and explains he didn't specifically dodge her for any specific reason. He asks some very generic questions, leading her to basically say, I have never really gotten very close to people. I want to be able to be honest and get close to somebody, but um, I, I don't know if I can do that with you. As Dick goes back to his apartment, he is approached by Babin, who tells him to get dressed. He doesn't even say anything, just gets dressed and obeys immediately and follows him across Gotham City. <laughs> Batman then proceeds to tell him that the dealer is having a auction, and at the auction is his father's Flying Grayson's costume from Haley's Circus, and he thought that maybe Dick would want that back. Dick, who in his Nightwing costume is still unshaven, decides to pop in and steal the outfit, but the dealer has other plans as he lights up a lighter and sets Nightwing on fire, the thugs shoot off a bunch of guns, and uh, Nightwing is having some problems kind of getting out of there. As he drops a ton of jet fuel onto the entire place, Nightwing is left with the decision to either save his dad's outfit or save the people who decided that he should die anyway. He decides to save the people, and the outfit gets burned. We then cut back to the cemetery where... This is the cemetery outside of Wayne Manor. We find out that this is actually Damien's grave that he came to, and he puts the Xbox 480 game Swordwalkers on his grave. We then cut back to Sonya's apartment later on, and I guess Dick got over the fact of being able to be around Tony Zuko's daughter. But wait, what is this? Sonya Branch has some horrible news for Dick. Turns out Tony Zuko is actually still alive. And after Dick says he was at the funeral and claims that she's trying to trick him, we see in Chicago a cutscene of Tony Zuko saying that he is clearly still an enforcer for some, in quotations, a big guy. That is the end of Nightwing number 18. Alright, so Nightwing number 18. So the first thing I want to talk about is the absolutely horrible condition that Dick Grayson is in. Clearly, he's still healing from the events of, I, I would suppose, Batman Incorporated, death of the family, amongst other things. But what do you think of Dick just sitting around his apartment, getting fat on fast food, and really moping around 
you're not doing anything. Does that seem like it's in character or out of character? Personally, I don't have a problem, but I'm familiar with Dick kind of being by himself whenever crappy things go on, whether it's like, you know, I read some old Teen Titans issues where he kind of is by himself or even some Nightwing issues where he has a tendency to have take out fast food or whatever. I'm not sure what else. He, he's not really the kind of person to like automatically just go out and beat up bad guys like Batman is, you know? He kind of just tries to kind of, you know, have his emotions wash over him. So if you're implying that you don't like it or you don't think it's in character, I don't really think it's out of character. I mean, I'm not saying, like, you know, that's exactly what he would do, but it didn't strike me as odd, in my personal opinion. No, me neither, especially considering how close he was to Damien. It, it definitely didn't bother me. I mean, he was talking a bit about how to get over his parents. You know, he found other, he found outlets and stuff, but I guess there's there's no need to do that straight away, and I, I think he starts to do that with Batman towards the end of the book. But I think that him sitting there moping, I think, as you put it. That didn't see, that didn't bother me. It seemed a, a realistic approach to how someone might react to something like this. Agreed. Sometimes, you know, when, like, bad stuff happens or just depressing stuff in general, I think we all have our ways with, with dealing with it, but sometimes it's just, like, really debilitating and, you know, you can try all you want to do to do something to forget about it, but it's just, like, almost the body shuts down and like you can the only physical thing you can do is just sort of like sit there and even though you don't want to think about it I think that's all you sort of think about so I can definitely see that I, I love though it, it's sort of ironic that he's filling up there on fast food but that's probably like the buffest that <laughs> I've ever <laughs> seen him so I guess it's not getting to him too much yeah the fried beef is what it is he's like eating protein foods I don't want to make it seem like, I, I know I asked the question in a way where it probably came across is that I have a problem with it. I understand that this is probably his way of dealing with all of the events that have happened with death of the family, with the death of Damien and all that stuff. So I, I find it that it's actually completely understandable. The, the one thing that I did kind of have a problem with is this whole Sonya Branch thing, because the last time we saw Sonya Branch, he leaves her abruptly because they kiss and then all of a sudden he gets these horrible flashbacks of how her father was the one who murdered his parents, even though he knew that all along. And, you know, he kind of snuffs her off in the last issue with the funeral for the Haley Circus people. But then he randomly decides, okay, I'm going to go see her. And then later in the same issue, he's also then going over to her apartment. So what do you think changed in his mind from the last time that he was with her to this time? Like avoiding contact with her to like, oh, maybe, maybe Damien died. I mean, it sounds like a kind of a complacent answer, but like, maybe, I think Dick is a bit self-aware to know that he can't just, you know, just be by himself and be okay. So maybe Damien's death kind of said, maybe interaction with somebody else who's away from my lifestyle would be good for me. But that's just me kind of guessing. Yeah, I think that would also play into the fact that, you know, he needs, he needs someone to talk to and the fact that she was opening up to him as well. It wasn't like he was seeking it out. It, it came to him that he might feel comfortable enough. But doesn't it seem a, just a tad odd that in the last issue, Barbara Gordon was there to talk to him, and in my opinion, she would know much more about the situation than Sonya Branch would. And we even saw in Batgirl her say, she, her call Dick and say, I need to talk, and he says, I can't talk right now, and that was the end of that. You know, we had that whole discussion about that was kind of stupid, but nonetheless, doesn't it seem just a little bit odd that he decides to go back to the person that he had these conflicting 
thoughts about because she has to do with this person that killed his parents. But then it, then the worst part about it is that I guess, I guess the, the, I guess the way I can say this best is, isn't it just a little too convenient how he had a problem with her? Didn't see her in the last issue. She, she comes back in this issue only to reveal, Hey, Tony Zuko's, Tony Sugo's still alive. And guess what? This is going to prompt you to leave Gotham and go to Chicago. And guess what's going to, <laughs> you know, when you put it like that, it is a bit like, you know, we need to have Sonya Branch be in this issue because she's in every issue. It does kind of ring like that where I think she is. I think she has been in every issue during this run, at least after the night of the owls stuff. Like she's appeared in every issue for one reason or another. Maybe I'm just used to it. I mean, I don't really have a problem with it, but I'm not saying like, you know, it makes total sense. Um, I mean, I, I'm actually kind of like warming to her character just a bit because her willingness to try to be nice to Dick and, you know, kind of be affectionate towards him is a bit more appreciable than like, you know, the hot and cold things he's been feeling with first Raya than Barbara. So her presence doesn't really bother me. I still don't really buy the romance, but like, I, I, I'm starting to see what you're saying, Dustin. It just didn't click with me, I suppose. So you might be right. I just didn't register to me as Amelia's a may have with you. Yeah, I don't think I read it as such a read her as a means to an end so much because I think that uh, like Don I don't necessarily buy the romantic interest in her but I thought that as a, a character I thought that her and Dick were both written really well particularly with their interactions in this issue particularly in the cafe I, I was really into the dialogue in that sequence and like Don said I'm warming to her and I think that in this issue in particular I thought that she actually was written really well I thought that it was a little too convenient. I, I didn't think that this was really written well at all. I mean, after she said that she read all of those messages, or I'm sorry, she left all those messages. And then apparently it was this one, you know, that got to him that he threw the phone against the wall, but he ends up meeting with her. It just doesn't seem like it. And, and I was going to bring up before Dustin did that. I mean, if you're going to talk to somebody, why is it going to be that woman whom I, you know, you kissed and maybe there's a relationship there, but it doesn't really seem as sound as you've got potentially your best friend, Barbara Gordon, that you said, I'm busy right now. I can't talk to you. So if you're going to be alone, maybe you need to be completely alone or you need to actually talk to someone who you know, knows what's going on. So I think it was just to bring this whole Zuko thing into play. I think, though, that Stella, you're always quite adamant that they're like, they have this great relationship in the New 52, and I don't think they necessarily do, and I don't think there's really ever been any evidence of that i don't know i've never been adamant that they have a good relationship but they certainly have a better relationship than uh him and this other girl yeah but she's never tried to beat him up on a roof so i i think that but but he also but her dad killed his parents and he can't get over that because he thought about it when he kissed it begins again which you're reading my yeah, I mean, but you can't talk to somebody that doesn't wholly know what's going on. It's not It's not so much about the fact that they have a good relationship or not. It's about the fact that, well, at least in my mind, it's about the fact that Dick and Barbara, they fight crime. They're mass vigilantes. They fight crime. Even if they don't have the greatest relationship, they are on more of the same page than Dick and Sonya. That's all I was saying with that. That's why it makes less sense for him to go and, you know, if he needs a, sh- a, sh- a shoulder to cry on, as 
as you know as it could be, it doesn't seem the shoulder that he would be needing to cry on would be Sonia Branch, who he had these conflicting problems with when once he kissed her two issues ago. So that that's what I'm saying with that. Well, you know, before we move on, I think that actually makes sense because both Dick and uh, again, like there's that there's that issue. I forget what number it is, but there was that issue early on in this Nightwing run where Bragger was there, and they had a pretty good relationship. I think that. I don't know, it, it seems to me like it's sort of like it would be a lot more logical for him to, to talk to Barbara. And I, again, this is, a, you know, like, like DC being nefarious, but I think that DC just want to kind of, kind of keep those characters apart. And like, whatever interaction they have with, it's always very fleeting. So I think it actually wouldn't make sense for him to sort of talk to Barbara. Like when Barbara called him in that last issue of Batgirl, he could have been busy. We don't know, but like, it would make sort of sense to, for him to catch up with her. But because I guess they want Barbara to do her own thing or Dick to do his own thing. We have to like, okay, well, who else going to do? Whoa, there's still in your branch, this, this on again, off again flame that he's having with. So I think we're sort of like seeing the holes in like the background editorial nature of it. And because of that, the story doesn't make as much sense as it might otherwise. I think, I don't know about you guys, but there's also definitely for me this constant state of unknowing about the state of the Bat family and if they're getting on or not because of yeah. death of the family, which I think plays into whether he, he's ignoring Barbara or if he, he just didn't think of calling her in this issue or what was going on in the last one. You know, I don't know because it's like, again, like, you know, Bar- he goes to Batgirl. Batgirl says she'd rather be by herself and not really connect to the Bat family. They intermittently meet during like, you know, the crossovers. Batgirl's really moved from everybody else. Dick doesn't, he obviously, he obviously doesn't have Damien. I have no idea whether he has any relationship with Tim Drake or not in this universe. In fact, that's never actually been brought up, to the, and I'm just now realizing that. And I'm not going to like approach it with much hostility. But because, I mean, because J- Jason's obviously a wild card. Tim is really, just because he's on a team, doesn't mean like, he, you can't talk to Tim. So I don't know. You know, Dick, Dick has never shown any sort of hostility to be with the Bat family in general. So I think it's a question of, you know, what the writer wants to do as opposed to what would make sense with the character in terms of, you know, the other characters he's, he's connected with. Okay, so then my last point that I want to talk about is this is the last issue before I believe Brett Booth takes over with issue number 19. So what did you think of the art in general? As I mentioned <laughs> throughout my entire recap, Dick was completely unshaven. And I think that kind of – and that's not to say that that can't happen because obviously if he's on this kind of situation where he's kind of de- – I don't want to say depressed, but that's what it seems as if, if he's binging on fast food and, and not keeping his personal hygiene up – to me, that's a sign of some sort of depression from all of the events that have happened. So to, to me, that's, that's acceptable that he can, you know, be unshaven. But in general, what did you think of the art overall? Once again, I actually really like the art. I just think that it's, it's all in the faces of where it gets let down. But I'd actually be happy to see this artist on the book continuously because I think with practice you'd get even better I think the faces are still an improvement over the last issue already and apart from the the faces I think that everything else is really well done it's quite an illustrative style I, I really like it I'll say briefly because I know <laughs> Stella has a bit more to talk about but um, I don't think the art is bad I'm going to really try to phrase my words right because this could come off as though I were John Rue but like the artist Jose Rip. I've seen there's been a, there's been a lot of influx of Hispanic artists in comics in the past like I would say five years, and that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. But in terms of a lot of them, I I, I see a lot of similar styles, you know, because like you can kind of compare this to like you know the Hernandez brothers with uh, you know Love and Rockets or whatever. And 
I see a lot of like really sort of like fleshy, more realistic, big lipped characters. I mean, the, the scene with the scene with Dick and Sonya. I'm not. Gonna, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna mention DSL or anything, but like it almost looks like they're kind of off design to me. It's like almost they almost look too different. And I think for a superhero comic, they have to be looking a bit more dynamic. I mean, even the texture of Nightwing's costume, it looks a bit like kind of fleshy, a little bit sort of like a little a bit of more of a laminated texture than it usually does to where he doesn't look as impressive. And again, I'm not saying I don't like this, but it looks a bit off putting in terms of you know. What, what would work for Nightwing? I think Brett Booth is a perfect kind of Nightwing artist. Whether his Nightwing art will be good or not, we don't know. But like, in terms of the artwork, I think that Jose Rip isn't a bad artist. But like, I'm just—it just feels a bit off for Nightwing specifically. You know, the issue started out fine, but it really was the uh, meeting between him and Sonya that was like a, a downward spiral for me. Yeah, the big lips is one thing. The eyes are sort of weird. <laughs> oh, thanks. That's, um, the eyes are weird. They kind of remind me. I mean, if you look at, it doesn't even look like Dick Grayson to me. He almost looks like Mad Hatter, you know, in that close up with him. Like he's, he doesn't really have a lazy eye, but it's like step towards getting a lazy eye. Uh, <laughs> so, oh, I don't know. It just didn't really look like, I don't know. I just didn't like it. But, you know, once they get into costume, it seems like it's fine. But it does seem like the lips really are accentuated. Like, you can see that throughout, even when uh, Damien's on screen. So I don't know what that's about. But maybe getting too close to their faces is not a good thing for uh, Rip to do. As for the beard and that discussion... I think that that is completely fine. Think about how many times, you know, we've seen Bruce and Batman with with stubble for several days. And it normally happens when, like, some tragedy happens. I remember just him going, you know, night after night after somebody died. And there's, you know, I think it's just a way to show that he's got his mind on other things. And that's not what he's worried about right now. So I think that that's fine that he's very similar to uh, Batman right now, but it's funny because then when Batman shows up, Batman looks like he may have shaved that day, so how is he doing better than uh, than Dick? Who knows? But yeah, I, I think I'll be glad to have Booth. Before, guys, I got to ask a question real quick because I think we're going to like sort of end this, unless Justin was going to say this before, but like, what do you guys think about the fact that Tony Zuko is still alive? I'm not, I don't like that at all. <laughs> I think it's one thing bringing in his daughter as like a new character, but this is, I mean, I don't know why it annoys me so much. I just think it's like, you know, he was dead and that's the story. Like, that's like part of his origin and stuff. And like, to bring it back, it just feels like, it, it doesn't feel clever or like, oh, wow, he's he's bringing that guy back. It just feels like, oh, so you couldn't think of anything else. You're going you're gonna <laughs> to bring that back is what it feels like to me. It just feels quite lazy and I'm... I'm not particularly happy with it. I, you know, I, I guess it's going to be some huge emotional roller coaster for Dick. You're, you killed my parents, but I, I'm not really interested. I, I don't think that it's something that. Here's the thing. I, I don't know that they needed to do this for sure. It seems as if it's a reason for Dick to leave Gotham, because honestly, it 
feels as if there's always a reason for him to have to do everything. He needed to leave Gotham in the beginning and not be around Batman when the New 50s started because he was going after Haley's circus because of everything happening with the, the circus traveling all over the place and he needed to be there instead of back in Gotham. They're really just, they're looking for reasons for him to not be in Gotham and Tony Zuko I don't know why he would need to go after Tony Zuko in Chicago, even if he was alive. He's not going to kill him. So what is the reason he needs to go after Tony Zuko? Yes, he could bring him down and bring him to justice, but quite honestly, what I, I just to me it just doesn't get it. I, I just don't get it. If he's if he's dead and he has a new identity, how are they going to prove that it's he's going to have to prove that it's actually Tony Zuko? which seems as if there would be more work in front of a computer than there would be sitting there and being the pulp out of Tony Zuko. So, I mean, I don't know. This from a character who supposedly he moves on, he, you know, he he's okay with things and he gets over things easily and he has good relationships with lots of people to he's now becoming the loner who's going to go after the person who killed his parents. Isn't that the complete opposite of everything we've known about this character since the New 52 started? I think it's dumb. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I'm like a real negative Nancy this episode anyways. No, you know what? Why can't you tell? I just want stories that we've not seen before. I mean, if Dick was over this, like he's trying to get over this, and that was something that happened at the very beginning and sort of created who he was, he created who he was as Robin, and we're Nightwing now. So we're really pulling him back to another time, and I feel like that's sort of chafing against who this character is, which I think is is really what, what Dustin was getting at. So I don't know. And again, he's going to another place, and we just got over this with his circus and going everywhere and i don't like it because i think nightwing you know deserves to be in blue haven uh, or blood haven as some people like to say well so i don't know personally it felt a bit like i don't want to say contrived but it kind of a bit you know out of nowhere and a bit, like joe said you know I, I can't think of anything else so i'll give oh yeah i'll give him angst about his parents killer which again like dick grayson part of me likes the fact that like they're kind of addressing his feelings over his parents death but that really isn't the character in that he doesn't mourn about it as much as Bruce Wayne does. He just doesn't. Now, I can't say that like it's never been done before because Batman Year 3 had Zuko coming out of prison and then dying. And Dark Victory showed him a little bit more of him. Batman the Animated Series had him come back into Gotham. So it's not like a, it's not like, you know, only time it's ever been done, but it's a move that's usually not done. I do think that it's a storyline that should remain closed. And I don't want that to be treated like Tony Zuko like a big shot because he really was sort of a chump. I'm on the fence. You know, I'm interested in how it's going. I don't want Higgins to make Dick to this, you know, broody crime fighter just because the guy who killed his parents is wrong running around. Because, you know, Dick could probably take him out easily. But I'm, I'm, this story has potential, but I don't have faith in the potential is what I'm going to say, unfortunately. All right. So Nightwing number 18, I'm going to give a total of three out of five batterings. Honestly, I'll give it a three and a half because I, I actually like the scene where he was talking to Damien at the end at the grave and started crying. I just thought that felt really in character and really dramatic. So I bump it up to a 3.5 out of five batterings. I'll give this a three because I really liked just the dialogue. And I thought for the most part that Dick was really, was written really well. I also liked his interactions with Damien's grave. I thought that was really well written. I really didn't appreciate Damien's appearance in the book though. Just in the flashback sequences, I thought that, especially considering how all the other books are handling it with, you know, with just sort of mentions and stuff, I didn't like seeing seeing him there. It, it felt 
really quite weird to me. And I also didn't like the Tony Zuko storyline that's going to be coming up. So I'll, I'll give this three out of five. Three out of five. All right. So Nightwing number 18 gets a total of three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batman Beyond, chapter 19 of Batman Beyond Unlimited number 14. Batman Beyond, chapter 19, Legends of the Dark Knight, Dana, part one. Writer Adam Beechin, penciler Peter Nguyen, inker Craig Young, and the colorist Andrew Elder. Dana reflects on why she loves dancing so. It is because when she is dancing, the world goes away. But when there is no music playing, her thoughts rush back in and fight with each other. It is especially bad that now there is no music because her brother, one-time leader of the Jokers, has killed so many, including himself. Dana is now at the hospital. Her father recently added the coma. Her brother put him in. Her mother most likely unhinged because she's trying to explain what Doug did. And Terry is battered and bruised, but he's here with her, along with his family, to be with Dana. Meanwhile, Bruce Wayne is dying of liver failure. Dana flashes back to when she first enrolled in a dance class right after the Tan family moved to America. She found a much-needed friend while Doug became obsessed with the Joker and started getting violent. We are then witnessed to Doug's downward spiral leading to jail and Dana wondering if she failed him as a sister. This guilt continues even now, given what has happened. She and Terry go on a walk to her father's room. Dana asks Terry to just be there for her as she breaks down just a little bit. She speaks with her father, and we don't see what is being said, though he does seem to to get agitated a little bit. Dana then wants to make one more stop on their walk, and it happens to be Bruce Wayne's room, saying that she has something to tell both of them about Batman. Wah, wah, wah. This is Dana's issue, you know, like her perspective, and I think this is the first time we've ever seen Dana having this first-person perspective here. So how did you like seeing everything from her point of view? And really the only other place we've seen this happen was in Batwoman with, you know, Maggie and Kate really seeing it from their viewpoints. So you could always compare it to that. So did you like seeing this as Dana's issue? And do you think it was as well done as as what we've seen done in Batwoman? I'm going to answer this. I I enjoyed it, actually. It's not often. I don't think we ever really got much of her... Not only in the series, but in the show. So I thought that like the sort of nuances we got in this were pretty good. I think that like I was actually interested in like you know more because they kind of got into it a little bit you know I, I, when the first time I met Terry. But I liked how the storytelling was where her thoughts were kind of drawn away from the you know into back into the reality of the situation. But every now and then she would kind of go into flashbacks and sort of like kind of not try and forget, but kind of like, you know kind of reminisce. And I thought that I like I liked how it kind of led to the end where she says you know I need you Terry you're doing this. And now we need to talk about Bruce Wayne. So the way the storytelling was and the way it sort of like kind of told in a nonlinear fashion, I thought actually would work, worked really well. I thought the thing is with Dana, everything that I remember about the original animated series was that the, she was, she was Terry's girlfriend. They really didn't explore her that much. And any, anytime they did focus on her, it was, she was at the club. She wanted to go to the club. She wanted to dance. So like, to me, it made perfect sense that this entire issue happened and it explains that, you know, this is, this is what she does to kind of like get rid of the, all of the thoughts that she has going on. And 
it also delves into the, the last story arc, which we didn't cover completely on the podcast, but with her brother being that King Joker and her brother being this menace that her father tried to control but never really worked out. You know, that stuff was never really explored in the TV series. So what they did was they took this really interesting bit that was her dancing and her, that was her thing in the TV series. And they, and they took the small amount of development that they had of the character from the last story arc with her brother being this menace. And they kind of incorporated it and made, gave her her own chapter to deal with. You know, what she, why, why she always appears as if she did when she was in the TV series. So to me, it was, well, getting back to the second question though, the, the idea from her perspective, I think it's kind of a cool idea because we don't really see that very much. There's not very many books that don't focus on just the main character. And in this case, it would be Terry McGinnis and not the supporting characters. And we've seen this before. We saw this with the Joe Chill Jr. character. That was a while back, but we did review that, that chapter. So I, I think that it, this is kind of, it, it builds the supporting characters, even though we know who these characters are. It builds that supporting cast that we don't really see that much in so many of these other books nowadays. Yeah, I also, I also liked it. I don't think we get to see as much of Dana as we would like, just kind of in, in our head, because really we, only see a lot of her yelling at Terry for not being there for her. And this issue has really started to turn that around that he's been there for her. And we get to see what's been going on in her perspective and how hard it's been. And, and I think that that's the best way. Instead of having Terry be the mouthpiece and be this guy looking inward, we get to actually see outward from someone who actually knows and, and is going through it. I don't know if it's as strong, I you know, as like the Maggie. I really like the Maggie Sawyer issue in Batwoman. But I, I, I just love the fact that we've got females taking the lead on some of these issues. So I hope that this is not the only one that we see Dana talking about what she's going through. And my final question is, do you think Dana knows the truth? Obviously, it's an ambiguous ending as to what she could w- desire to talk to Bruce Wayne and Terry about. Perhaps she just knows that they're somehow related, like Batman Inc., but not necessarily that one is, in fact, the other. But it's interesting just with that news piece, you know, Batgirl is popping up, and who else would potentially take up that mantle? It would be interesting, but it would have to somewhat stay in continuity with what we saw at the end at Justice League Unlimited. But do you think she knows the truth? Well, I know that she at one point she has to. This is sort of following uh, epilogue, that JLU episode. Although, because I've not been following the series in a while, I'm not sure what will lead her to know the truth about Batman. Um, if, 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 if I've missed anything, please kind of interrupt and say if I've missed anything, because I don't know if there's anything besides Tara getting beat up or, you know, Terry going away to her first job that would really indicate that Batman has anything to do with Bruce Wayne. Although, I think, I think also they had, they mentioned Batman Incorporated in the past issue. So, I'm not sure if she does. I mean, she could. But, I, I don't know. I know that she has to at one point. Which it just depends on whether she does at this point in time. Yeah, I, I don't really, since we dropped out, I haven't been following this title. Cause I, I just, I, as much as I'd like to see some of the Batman Beyond TV series, I, I haven't been able to yet. And I just don't really have any emotional connection to these characters. So I, I don't really find them interesting. 
and that's not to say the book's not well written because I think that for the most part I, I did enjoy the book but because I don't have that emotional connection to it I, I can't invest myself in it as much as I'd like to I think that's Overall, I, I don't know that she actually knows. We've seen this actually before in the actual TV series where she, we see these ambiguous endings or these ambiguous comments from her leading us to believe that maybe she's a little bit smarter than she's been always portrayed and she has figured something out. And it wouldn't be far-fetched because she's been around since the beginning of Terry being... Batman that she has been able to figure it out, but realistically, I don't know that she actually has. I don't. I, I think that the ambiguous ending is meant to be a cliffhanger to get you to read the next issue, and honestly, I don't think it's much more than that. Now, that's not to say that I don't think the character could possibly figure out in the future, or at some point it is revealed to her, but I think that ultimately, it's probably just a cliffhanger. Alright, so Batman Beyond Chapter 19 as printed in Batman Beyond number 14, I am going to give a total of three and a half out of five batterings. I'm actually going to give it a total of four out of five batterings. I'll give it three. Like I said, I, it's not that it's not well written. I, I just unfortunately don't have that connection to it. I will also give it four out of five. All right. So that is going to give Batman Beyond chapter 19 as printed in Batman Beyond Unlimited number 14, a total of four out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batman the Dark Knight. Number 18. Oh, yeah. Batman, The Dark Knight, number 18. The Birth of the Mad Hatter. Written by Greg Hurwitz. Illustrated by Ethan Benscover. This issue begins with Bruce, you know, in the middle of a crowd on on the Gotham streets. Talking to Alfred about trying to track down the Mad Hatter. Although, (laughs) it's a bit inconspicuous for Bruce Wayne since he is sort of a public figure in Gotham City. He passes a restaurant and sees, I assume it's um, Nadalia waving to him. And Bruce has, you know... Sort of deer in the headlights look on him, waving back. And Alfred's saying, are you still there? He's like, oh, yeah, I'm still here. Uh, I'm still here. So they track down Tweedledee at the Wild Hair, which is coincidentally titled Nightclub. And before Batman begins to interrogate him, Tweedledee talks about this whole spiel about, you know, remember when, you know, you first stopped me at this robbery of the Gotham Trust Bank and you slammed into me and like I had this fracture and this fracture and 11 hour surgery to fix my face and my teeth are numb and I can't have any sense of taste. I have nerve damage and, you know, you did all this to me, so I'm not telling you a single thing. Batman takes one look at him and says, yeah, well, a working father and, you know, a woman trying to go her way through college died in that robbery. So if I see you again, I'm going to break your jaw clean off. Lead at homeboy. So the next day, he tracks down the Hatter's men at some sort of warehouse and sees the crates are all full of pistols and rocket launchers and bags of tea. The tea itself contains trace elements of LSD, in other words, I can actually pronounce, which essentially, as analyzed by Batman's cow, will give him enhancements like super strength and aggression. Speaking of aggression, the Mad Hatter gets the drop on Batman and knocks him out with some sort of hole and gets his escape. Batman begins to track him down, but is, you know, sort of taken aback by Catwoman, who's just about out of nowhere, stealing the hubcap from one of Batman's Batmobiles. He has seriously got to get that fixed. So, um, this is a rather pointless scene where Selena says, ah, yeah, you don't, you know, we don't have sex anymore. What's up with that? Have you found yourself a wife? Well, there's nobody else in the city who can do what we do, and she kind of j- jumps away. So we go back to the Mad Hatter and begin another one of his hilarious flashbacks, where we see Jervis Tetch... He's in middle school at this point, so he's about, I guess, in 7th and 8th grade. And he's not growing as tall as the other boys in his class. 
So there's this junior high dance, and he is going to go with Alice and her friends, not on a date, although, you know, being a boy at that age, she probably assumes it's a date. And his parents take him to the doctor where we learn that he has testosterone deficiency. So he's not growing or it's not really going through puberty as much as the other boys. The doctor says, you know, there is this experimental drug which can give, you know, testosterone and make you bigger. But it has, you know, comic book side effects like, you know, it affects your mental stability, makes you paranoid, drives you, turns you into a psychopath literally. So we probably shouldn't even mention this because you are a child, but we'll mention it because of the plot. So um, at this dance, Jervis tries to grab Alice's hand. She says, oh, you know, I like you, but not in that way. So he feels bad. We cut to Jervis Tetch in, you know, as the Mad Hatter in present times, tracking down Alice, going by her maiden name, Alice D, but actually she's married to a Mr. Keith Kala. And he bribes the husband to take the kids out while he murders her because she is old and unattractive. So he puts her out of her misery, as he puts it. Speaking of misery, we cut to Bruce Wayne playing piano in his boxers for some reason and reminiscing about his mother. So he decides to track down Natalia and blow the whole bit by revealing that he's actually Batman. He takes her onto the Batplane and flies her to the Batcave and says, this is who I am. Cut back to Mad Hatter, you know, screaming, saying, no, 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 as he guns down somebody else and random anger, saying that he's going to find the perfect cast. And we see uh, a final flashback where after 12 panels of mulling over it, Jervis decides to take the testosterone pills. Next, mass murder in Gotham. So in this issue, we see more of Mad Hatter's flashbacks, and we also see the return of Natalia and a very surprising move where Batman reveals his identity. I want to hit up that first. What did you guys think about that scene? And I'll start off real quickly by saying that I was under the impression that was sort of a, you know, a dream or, you know, a daydream by Batman. I actually didn't think he was going to do that. And personally, I kind of hope that that's, you know, not shown to be true. But what did you guys think? Did you guys like this? Was it refreshing or was it just kind of a bit out of character for Bruce to do? I'm surprised you went with this is the first thing to talk about, but I, 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 I think we saw this coming in some way, shape, or form. We talked about Natalia appearing in every single issue and how there was a reason it had to be happening for some reason. And my guess was that she was going to figure out who Batman was or who Bruce was and, you know, maybe some kind of horrible villainous thing could happen because of it. But this could be, you know, a different, completely different take that I didn't necessarily see coming because I... I don't know. To me, it just feels as if, why does Bruce need to do this? I mean, how many times have we actually seen Bruce do this? We saw it in Batman 1989, the film where he takes Vicky Vale straight into... No, Alfred did that. Oh, that's right. No, 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 that's right. Sorry, I'm mistaken. Get your portrayals right. Uh, Alfred takes him into the Batcave. And then we see, he revealed to Jezebel Jett more recently that he was Batman. So, I mean... To me, it just comes across as what is the necessity for Bruce to constantly be revealing this? Because it almost never works out in his favor. I suppose the next point I can mention is the whole, um, the thing with Alice. And um, I suppose this is sort of a twofold question because we see more flashbacks, which it seems though is that Jervis's flashbacks, whereas people were nice to him, actually did turn out to be true. At least, at least so far in this story, I was, I was under the impression they were maybe possibly uh, his preferred versions of some sort of horrible childhood. But what do you think about the whole plot twist? You know, his angst comes from him having testosterone deficiency and being rejected for not being man enough at age thirteen. What do you guys think about that sort of twist on his origin? 
See, I don't think that it's so much that he wasn't man enough. I think it was more about the fact that, you know, we, we were saying for the long, you know, we were saying for the last couple of issues that maybe the whole thing was going to be revealed that this was some kind of like, uh, you know, this is how he perceived his childhood, but that's not actually how it was. But I think it is how his childhood was. He had a bunch of friends. He wasn't the unpopular kid like every other character we see all the time. And the thing is, he was looking at Alice as, you know, a possible girlfriend or, you know, some somebody like that. And she was looking at him as he was a friend. It wasn't so much that she was, like, denying him and saying, no, you're not man enough for me. I don't think it was the, like that at all. I think it was more about the fact that she didn't, she didn't look at him and say, yes, I want a, I want a boyfriend and that's going to be you. But she wasn't like saying, no, you're not going to be my boyfriend because I'm going to go for this much more manly man. I was just joking about think, that. <laughs> no, I know. But I mean, like, it just that I think this is actually unique in the fact that it doesn't come across as every other villain's origin that we see. You know, oh, he had such a horrible childhood, blah, blah, blah. Yes, the testosterone deficiency kind of plays a unique part because we haven't seen that before but it's using stuff that you know didn't that people wouldn't even consider putting in comics 40 years ago when the character was introduced so i mean to me it it kind of plays off and explains why he's so short why he went crazy you know why he is the mad mad hatter so i mean like to me it makes perfect sense and it explains it in a way that you know, links up with actual society in today's world. Yeah, I'm not so sure about the science behind it, but I guess it's comic books, so I'm pretty sure... It doesn't have to be real science, I'm just saying they're at least trying to make science. I I think that actually is realistic, I think that actually happens in real life, people with testosterone deficiency. Are there not things which do elevate... I mean, I, I don't know. Like the whole thing with like, I mean, I, I don't know if like medicine for it makes you turns you into a you know a mustache twirling supervillain with a Alice in Wonderland fetish, but <laughs> I think that like there is there is actually like like testosterone deficiency is a legitimate case in in a real life, and like there actually is medicine for it. Not, not I'm not speaking from experience; I don't have it, but um, I think that that's that's not made up. I think that the effects of the drug he takes is probably made up, but I think that like that that element is actually realistic. I probably just Wikipedia this really quick and find out for myself, but why waste the listeners' time? I do agree that the the pseudoscience of it is a an interesting take on why he is the way he is, and and the side effects of the drug playing into his origin. I think is an interesting idea, and it would explain it. I think quite, I don't I don't know his original origin, but I think this is a fairly legitimate way to do it. It's, it's seems like a, a way to do it without it seeing seeming to like i guess i don't I, I don't know i mean too much like a gag i guess but if, if it's one of the side effects is he becomes fixated on something and there's been enough things in his life so far to remind him of alice in wonderland that uh it i think it's an interesting take on it right well here is it's like alice in wonderland it's almost like a like a, a backdrop to his story it's really just like the blonde chick named alice and the fact that they had a nice date or not date or whatever it was in that in that theme. So like you know, I got I gotta say that like I'm sort of warming a bit more to this version of the Mad Hatter. I still don't I still don't like him as much as the original one because personally that one was actually a bit more unique. But like Hurwitz here is actually making this Mad Hatter a bit more I'm not gonna say believable in that he's more realistic, but I believe in his character more, his anger and his and his hostility 
is made a lot more understandable. Like when he killed Alice, like it's like he's, he's got to meet a murder quota every issue, but it's one that I understand and, and it does fit the character, which, which we're kind of seeing through the flashbacks. So I understand it. And I don't, it's hard because I, I have this whole other Mad Hatter to compare it to in, in which one I would prefer. So this one just does not win out, but for this story, it is working for me. Do you guys feel the same way or do you, are you, are you not really, does it matter or not? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think this is all for this one. All right. So Batman, the dark Knight number 18, I'm going to give four out of five batterings. Unlike Nightwing, I was 3.5 out of five batterings because I did think that what Bruce did at the very end, I don't care if he's done it frequently before it was really out of character, but generally I like this issue 3.5 out of five batterings. Yeah, I'll agree at 3.5 because I'm also not entirely convinced of how the, by Bruce's actions at the end. Oh, I didn't really enjoy this issue. I'll give it a 2.5 out of 5. All right, so that's going to give Batman the Dark Knight number 18 a total of 3.5 out of 5 batarangs. Let's move into our last book, Batman Incorporated number 9. Okay, Batman Incorporated number 9, written by Grant Morrison with art by Chris Burnham and Jason Masters. The issue opens with Bruce, Alfred, Dick, and Tim carrying Damien's body to his grave as Bruce reflects upon the previous issue. We cut to where the last issue ended with Damien in Bruce's arms as Damien's clone says, Batman, it was me, I did it. Furious, Batman takes on the clone, even breaking the sword that killed Damien with his bare feet. The clone starts to get the better of Batman, but after waking up from being knocked out and distraught at seeing Damien's body, Nightwing jumps into the fight. We cut back to the funeral where Bruce says some words which I won't be able to do justice if I simply repeat them about his son and we cut to another funeral in London where the knight is being given a soldier's burial and we see Beryl talking to Dark Ranger, the Australian Batman Inc. representative as she takes over the knight persona and teams up with him. We also see the Prime Minister of England saddened by Knight's death, saying that he realises there are no Lazarus pits left, to which his assistant says that may not strictly be true. Back at Damien's funeral, Alfred tries to console Bruce, but blaming him for his role in Robin's death, Bruce orders Alfred to take a vacation. We cut to Talia and Damien's clone atop Wayne Tower, where she's clearly upset with him for acting without orders in killing Damien, but he asserts himself, claiming his self-entitled role as Batman. Meanwhile, the news is reporting on the attack on Wayne Tower, blaming it on Bruce's involvement in Batman Inc. with rumours of Damien's death already. We cut back to the night of Damien's death and the fight where once again the clone is getting the upper hand before Tim shoots him with the tank from the Wayne Tower foyer. We then cut to the mayor of Gotham at a press conference, reading a communication from Leviathan. The communication lets the people of Gotham know how well Leviathan is implemented in the system and calls for Batman and everything related to the Batman franchise be banned, as well as Bruce Wayne handing himself in to the authorities. We cut to several members of Batman Incorporated who have now gone underground. They question where the hood is, and we also see that Jason has been kidnapped by Spyro, presumably why he wasn't at the funeral. We cut back to Batman getting ready in the cave stitching his wounds as Damien is named deceased on the back computer. As Batman pets back cow, he's overcome with emotion and screams in the cave. So yeah, I guess first question might be how do you think that this carried on from the events of number eight and its relation to Batman and Robin, how how you felt that the emotions were dealt with in the two separate books? 
Okay, I'll, I'll say uh, I actually thought that this is a very I really I was really li- liking how they followed up with this last issue because it showed us kind of like everything we wanted to see in a way which I don't think we initially thought it was going to be shown. In that I like the kind of cut, cutting back and forth between the immediate aftermath of Damien's and and Damien's funeral because Damien's funeral I think we've had a lot of you know requiem issues, most of them useless, and this is sort of something that we kind of needed to see. Whereas we also want to see how it kind of followed up, and I liked the kind of small funeral it was. You know, it was very kind of private, and I I liked you know the immediate scene where Batman and Nightwing just they are. I, I love. I really do like Nightwing's reaction to it, where he's kind of like coming to. He's like you know, he has his own separate reaction to Damien's death, and you know, Bruce and Dick just like attack this guy, and you know they can't really beat him tim with the tank's kind of funny but like i thought that storytelling and how it kind of showed back and forth between the immediate aftermath and like you know the emotional aftermath and the scene with bruce saying alfred take a vacation and the scene of his face sort of like superimposed in the rain all that stuff was really well done like the, in the way the story ended you know you know grant morrison i was a bit concerned going into this issue because he really is not one for like heavy emotion i think he's even said as much in terms in certain interviews so like i was wondering if this is going to be sort of like you know a very clinical you know, leaving the emotion to the recording issues, but I thought that you did a really good job in this issue in terms of, you know, having the aftermath of Damien's death have an effect on the Batman family. So I thought this was very well done. I thought that overall the issue, I thought, I thought the fight scene was, was done pretty well. I was trying to figure out because it's been a while since it's, I don't know what it is. I, it seems to me as if Batman Incorporated takes place in this different timeline as everything else. So, to me, it's a little difficult to sometimes follow what's going on. We we saw the reveal of who Wingman was. I think it was like issue six or issue seven. It's been it's been a while, but we saw Wingman being revealed as Jason Todd, and then that whole situation right before while the Leviathan was taking out Knight. We saw that whole situation where Wingman was taken out by the Hood. And that, that all happened. And Jason Todd has kind of been MIA for the, well, he wasn't in the last issue. So it was kind of like, okay, so now what? He, he's not around. So to me, when I saw the, the four people carrying the coffin and I was trying to figure out, okay, so obviously Alfred, Bruce, Dick, and I was like, okay, so I'm guessing that's Tim, which makes sense because he was there at the fight. The, the, I mean, like, I don't want to make it, I don't, well, I, I don't, I don't know who else it would have been. I was just trying to figure out if it wasn't Tim, who else it could be. And I, I don't know. I was just trying to figure out, I guess the, the biggest thing in my mind was I was trying to figure out this entire giant battles happening with Leviathan. Leviathan is taking over Wayne Tower. They have, they're basically occupying Gotham right now. And for some odd, I mean, and I'm not saying this is disrespect to Damien, but they take time out of this war to get Damien out of there and then to go bury him properly in the ground. To me, as respectful as that is to the character, as respectful as that is to, you know, Bruce's son, to me, it just seems completely out of place because aren't they at a, aren't they in the middle of a giant war? How do they have time just to take a break to have a funeral? It is implied that they're in flashbacks, don't you think? Because we, we cut no, back I, to the fight. No, I don't stuff. think that. I don't, I don't think that because they the fight did happen, but then at the end of the fight, they say, "Grab Damien, let's get out of here," and then they leave. And then we see that scene 
in the middle of the, the mayor saying the thing about, you know, we are no longer supporting Batman, blah, blah, blah. Talia's on the roof of Wayne Tower talking to the clone and says to him, I didn't tell you to kill him. You're supposed to be listening to my orders. You take orders from me. And then during that entire exchange between the two of them, that's the same time we see the funeral. So to me, it seems, and then we also, there was a point, I believe during that press or before the press conference where they say it's been two days since Leviathan has occupied Wayne Tower. So to me, it just seems, and like I said, I understand it. They're trying to respect the character and give him a proper burial. I get it. But to me, it just seems as if this terrorist organization has just occupied the city that you are, you are, you know, you have sworn to protect. And you're stopping to let the terrorists continue to run rampant, you know, have the riots infiltrate more parts of the, the, the city system so that you can bury your son. As great as it is to bury your son, I think that as the, as, as the character of Batman, there are some things that are just more important, like eliminating the giant threat that is the city. If you stop to have a funeral, get all dressed up in a suit, find time to have someone buy a coffin to put your son in and then go bury him in the back in, in, in your, I shouldn't say the backyard, but in your, in your cemetery that's in your, on your property. It just seems a little out of place that you can do all of that in the middle of this giant, horrible event that is happening <laughs> that they have been, it's everything's been leading to for all this time. Does it really bother you that much? I, I guess it's coming across as it bothers me a lot more. I just found it just, a little odd, and I'm sure it's because I because of all my reasoning. It's coming across as I absolutely despise it, but it's not so much that I despise it. I just found it just a little odd that they have time for a funeral in the mean in the meantime. Gotham is. I mean, they're having all these news reports about how horrible Gotham is and how everything is going to crap. Well, I mean, I can kind of I, I see you know the logistics of the timing because there is a lot of things happening. I mean, I, so I understand that at the same time though, it was Robin, it was Damien. So it's one of those things where, like, you know, we see how the small the funeral is. To me, that's sort of that sort of strikes as a, as a legitimate priority. But, but you know, I suppose we can agree, could disagree. I, I don't know what, what else is this, this is going to come up. Do you guys have any thoughts about how they're going to handle Damian Wayne's death in, like, you know, the public eye? I mean, he has, he has a sword through him. How are they going to actually explain that? Uh, I was definitely wondering about that. Yeah, I don't think they're going to. They they make that comment about how. Well, in the news conference, they made the comments about how uh, Bruce Wayne's son may have lost his life in the middle of all of that. And, you know, maybe they're just going to play it off as he was in Wayne Tower and he was a casualty of the events that happened. That's probably what's going to end up happening. But I don't I, I think it's I, I don't think it's going to be like, oh, well, let's have an autopsy on on Bruce Wayne's son to find out how he died. I don't think that's going to happen at all. If someone wouldn't want to not toss it on Bruce Wayne's son, but never mind. I think it's a bit bizarre that, you know, because they're clearly going to recognize that he hasn't got a Robin and then with Damien now dead, I, I don't know if they're going to pass it off that. I, I, I don't know how they're going to handle it. I mean, I think this Grant Morrison is can write it goofy enough for it. You know, it, it, he's got like, He's definitely got serious tones, but I think he can write it in a goofy enough way that it will, he'll be able to play it, pull it off as either they just won't know and we'll have to accept it or there'll be some mad reason. But I, I'm not so worried about it as long as it comes off as genuine. I think there are ways for it. It, it could come across as really 
badly written, but I think I trust Grant Morrison enough to handle it. I think even if he just kind of ignores it, I'd, I'd be willing enough for that. I think. You guys think that the gam in front of Jason Todd is Kathy Kane? Like Grant Morrison's been threatening for the past couple of years. Well, she played the part. She's played a part in it so far, and she was in the Leviathan Strikes one shot, and they're definitely dressed in her Stupid outfit. Costume. So it could be. <laughs> I think that's all part of the Spyro uh, plot that's been going through with it, and there was the reference to the Hood, who I think has been like a double agent all the way through for them. So I, I, I mean, I really like the emotion. I thought it was written really well. I liked how it was. The, the funeral scene was, was quiet up until they started talking. I mean, it's, it's not the silent issue, of course, and I'm glad that it was different. But I thought that we needed to see some worded emotion, and I think it seems the most genuine coming from the series where it happened. So I think seeing the aftermath of the fight and seeing the, the actual funeral, I think it was really effective, and I thought it was written really well, really emotionally. And I mean, I, I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. I, I liked it a lot. Yeah, I think that like uh, I was gonna say real quick that like just like the final scene where Bruce is just kind of you know cleaning himself up. It's like that's that's Batman. That's what he does. You know, kind of just continues on the fight. And then like there's always that moment that just kind of snaps him back. There's always that moment that kind of just tugs at Bruce Wayne's heartstrings. And I think that Morrison really did that well. Where you know he's putting Agent Disease, he's putting on painkillers, he's putting on the costume again. Then he sees the cow, and then and then he loses it. I think that to me speaks of the character. Yeah. I, I had one thing that I wanted to bring up and get your thoughts on. There's an odd exchange between two British officials where they talk about how the night was immensely popular and good for Britain as a whole. And he make there's a the person makes a comment about how there are no active Lazarus pits left, but surely. And then the person replies, "Um, that may not be strictly true, Prime Minister." Oh, yeah. And then it kind of leaves it up in the air. Meanwhile, the scene right before that, we see that Beryl's taking over the role of Knight, so I'm I'm kind of wondering what your thoughts were specifically about the exchange between the two British officials, because that seems as if they're possibly leading to something about could the Knight be thrown into a Lazarus pit by the British government, or are they just referring to the fact that someone else is going to take over the role of Knight? Well, you know, okay, I'm trying to think of this because I wasn't on the show when you guys talked about this, but in Batman and Robin, when Batwoman was, like, with Dick, and she, like, randomly died, and he was, she was putting the, uh, the uh, Lazarus Pit, wasn't Knight and Squire with them as well? So they would know about the Lazarus Pits as well. Yeah. Yes, they would. Okay, so that, that's that's sort of, like, they could have been, like, I'm not going to say that's foreshadowing, but, like, there is a resource to go back on that. That will be interesting. I, I, yeah. I find it really cool that, like, the government knows about the Lazarus Pits. I imagine that that was more of a... Throwing it out there, and yeah, Lazarus pits do exist. I'm not sure if that's a reference to Damien. Maybe it's just you know hope for the fans who are desperate for him to come back soon. I'm not sure. I, I've always been a, a huge fan of Grant Morrison's kind of take on the DC universe of all of this being real and the people knowing about this and having things like superhero groups and and be sort of like B level superheroes who just want to try and make it and get into the Justice League and the and things like that. So I think having the Prime Minister of England know about Lazarus Pitts is, is a really cool concept and ties in with that. And then the other thing I wanted to ask was the, there was that exchange between Bruce and Alfred where Bruce basically says, you allow Damien to leave the cave, even though I told you that I didn't want him to. And then Alfred tries to defend himself and basically Bruce says, go take a vacation. 
and we'll talk when this is over. And then when Alfred tries to persist to talk about it, then he demands that he takes a vacation. <laughs> so thoughts on that. Do you think there will be any kind of repercussions because Alfred has to go take a vacation outside of Batman Incorporated? Or do you think all the other books are just going to ignore that? I hadn't thought about that. I thought that it was written perfectly. And I think that that's the reaction Brees would have because I don't, he, he would never get rid of Alfred. And I think that he'll come to forgive him, obviously. But I thought that that was written, that scene was written really well. And like I was, I kind of said in the last issue, if you want to do a death of the family, this was how you do it. And I think that that exchange was written really well. And you know that Alfred's going to feel terrible. I mean, Scott Snyder's going to be, if he's doing zero a year, then it won't play into that. It will definitely play into Batman and Robin, I'm sure. And then for the other books, I don't think that it's going to matter so much. I don't think that Nightwing or Batgirl will need to reference that Alfred is gone. So I don't think it's that big a thing in the in the continuity of the Bat books at the moment that it will play into or have any issues. Whether his dis, whether his going on vacation will then play into Batman Inc. would be interesting if if Leviathan get a hold of him or or anything yeah, like that. That's a good thought. I mean, I'm not saying that it wasn't written well. I think it was written perfectly. I was just thinking to myself. You know, Batman Incorporated, as we've said numerous times, has always been that odd book out where, you know, because of the New 52, they wanted to give Grant Morrison the opportunity to finish this ginormous story that he started so many years ago. But the New 52 kind of happened abruptly and towards the end of this story. So they're just letting him play it out. And as we've said, you know, they, they kind of ignore everything that's happening in Batman Incorporated. It's kind of like the, redheaded stepchild that nobody really wants to talk about but they were forced to talk about when they decided when when grant morrison killed damien so they were forced to you know reference what was happening in batman incorporated for once out of the entire new 52 and to me it's just interesting that you know yes obviously damien dying is a giant thing but because all these other books insisted on you know, specifically dealing with the fact that, or at least addressing the fact that Damien has died in all these books that have had the Requiem banner on him. To me, it just is interesting that, okay, so Bruce is upset with Alfred, which makes complete sense. It works perfectly, written well, but I guarantee you we'll see Detective Comics the next couple months, or Batman the Dark Knight, or maybe even Batman before Zero Year starts having Alfred interact with Bruce Wayne which goes against everything that's happening in this book. So to me, it's not so much that Batman Incorporated is doing something wrong. It's that DC editorial is looking at this and saying, well, we didn't have any choice but to deal with the fallout of Damien dying, so we're going to address that. But all these other things that happen all the time, we're not going to address at all. The biggest one that I I could say is the fact that Jason Todd the entire time in Batman Incorporated has been working with Bruce. And since the new 52 started, Jason Todd has been the person who doesn't want to work with Bruce at all. I would say that from the issues that we read before we dropped it, I think he was coming more to terms with the fact that he, he wasn't going to fight Bruce anymore, but I I would, yeah, he definitely didn't say I'm, I'm fighting with him. Right. Yeah. I I mean, I'd forgotten about uh, detective and stuff. So that, that'll be, interesting to see if that does play in uh so far uh dark knight hasn't been playing in with this so if we see alfred in the next book then you know i mean it doesn't even have the requiem banner on well uh, can i say something real quick about it because like uh 
I agree with you guys that like it was written perfectly. I was a little. Uh, I, I, I don't. Know how, I don't know how to say this without it coming off more than it really is. But like, I would have thought that Alfred would have assumed a bit more responsibility. Bruce is like, you know, you allow Damien to leave the cave against my express instructions, and Alfred was almost like, you know, whoa, whoa, sir, the boy. I thought he could do it. Like, you know, I would imagine that Alfred would actually feel as much guilt as 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 Bruce feels for him. But that's. I mean, that's just an observation. That being said. I really appreciate that Morrison didn't have Bruce rage quit in his face, like saying, like, you know, bro, what's wrong with you? I, th- I think Peter Tomasi probably would have done that, as good as P- Peter Tomasi is. But Bruce is just, you know, he's a, he's sort of a stone right now. He's like, you know, really sort of like, you know, kind of mentally focused. He's not, you know, you know, in other books, we can see him kind of be driven with rage. So this sort of, you know, the aftermath after everything's said and done. But during the moment now, I really like that image of him saying, take a vacation. Because he's full of, sadness and rage and guilt but he's not letting it go he's not letting it kill him and you know he's not letting it have him go after any of the other of members of his family so i thought that was really well done and really really well illustrated by chris burnham and on the subject of chris burnham i mean i i like that although i think <laughs> i had the phrase recently uh a light can only shine so bright when next to supernova so no with Jason Masters never going to be as good as Chris Burnham, but I I appreciate that they've kind of segmented his stuff to related pieces, and then the kind of asides from the the action of the fight and the aftermath at the funeral. So when you see his work, it's not like you know a page of Bruce really upset at the funeral, and then another one like the next page of him still at the funeral, but differently drawn. So it, the jump from styles isn't as bad as it could be. But I think the only problem I have with this book, and it's not a big problem, but I felt that Tim was written too happy in this, just when he's in the tank. And I know that he never got on with Damien, but I don't think it's any excuse to be laughing while blowing someone up in the tank. <laughs> does he know that Damien's dead, though? He's like, yeah, right. Maybe he does, I don't know. You would, I mean, yeah, it's not said, but you would have thought. It's just... Well, I mean, even the girl knows that he's dead, and he was told, or and the girl was told by Tim, stay down, gunfire's bad, so I'm assuming if the girl has figured out that Damien's dead, then clearly Tim was... Well, I mean, I mean, like, in fairness, going back to the scene, Ellie was with Batman as Batman was holding Damien's body. Tim was, like, under, like, a broken airplane or whatever, so, like, and then he kind of appears out of a tank. That's what I'm saying, whether he knows or not, because I, I don't know, judging from, like, the illustration of the scenes... But I mean, he might. I don't. I don't know. It's not really worth arguing. Yeah, that was the only I think slight issue I had with it. Just just the cheerfulness of him. But apart from that, I thought everyone was written really well. And like tying into what I was saying about the way Grant Morrison kind of crafts the universe, having like the mayor of Gotham City and stuff involved, and and relating it back to the franchise of Batman and stuff, I just thought was really cool. So I'm really looking forward to the rest of the series. Tell you again what's coming to her. All right. So Batman Incorporated number nine, I'm going to give a total of four and a half out of five batterings. Look at that picture of Batman raging at the bats. I agree. 4.5 out of five batterings. I'll give this a definite five. I did not like this issue as much. It fell flat for me. I thought that it lost the emotion from the previous issue. 
there was too much going on for me, a little cluttered, and the timeline seemed really weird. Like, I could follow it in the beginning, but then it started to get really messy going back and forth. So it just wasn't as well composed compared to the previous issue and definitely compared to Batman and Robin 18, I guess. So 3.5 out of 5. All right, so that's going to give Batman Incorporated number 9 a total of 4.5 out of 5 batterings. That is all of our books. Let's go over to John with Bat Books for Beginners. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Bat Books for Your Beginners. I am your host, John, and this episode we are covering the final two issues of Batman Aftershock, and these are Batman Chronicles number 14 and Robin number 54. Batman Chronicles features three stories, Master of the House, written by Lisa Klink and art by David Boller, The Lunatic Fringe by Bruce Canwell and art by Jim Apro, and Random Encounters by Greg Rucker, and art by Sal Busima and James Hodgkins. It was released in autumn 1998. For those of you who don't really know much about it, Batman Chronicle was a way for DC to release Batman comic every week of the year. It usually featured three stories, and was often used to allow new writers and artists to have a go at writing a Batman story, although it didn't always include Batman. Robin is written by Chuck Dixon and has art by Staz Johnson and Stan Wok, and it was released in June 1998. So these are the final two issues of the Batman Aftershock series. Let's find out if it's going to go out on a high or whether I'm going to be let down as we delve into Batman Aftershock's Batman Chronicles and Robin. Master of the House opens with a group of people wearing goggles staring at Wayne Manor. We then move to Alfred inside the house preparing a bath using rainwater. However, whilst he is doing that, the power is cut and he spots the gang running across the lawn towards the house. They break in and start to loot it. Alfred tries to contact Bruce to get help, but he is caught doing so. However, he manages to knock out one of the gang members and then impersonates him. While in disguise, he takes out another gang member using knockout gas. However, the first gang member Alfred knocked out is discovered and the alarm is raised. One of the gang members thinks he's found something much more important and he stands at the entrance to the Batcave. Meanwhile, Alfred is caught once again by one of the gang. However, he uses a flare to blind his captor and he races off to prevent the final member from entering the cave, which he does only just. However, the criminal tries to pull Alfred into the hole, but they both fall onto a ledge. Alfred gets help, and the issue ends with Batman returning and Alfred setting up breakfast for him. 
Lunatic Fringe opens with Huntress suspending someone above a raging river, demanding answers as to the whereabouts of a missing school bus. She discovers the bus, but finds that it's empty. She then moves into an abattoir, which is the only building still standing. However, she discovers that the people inside have been eating cats and dogs as well as people, and it appears that the missing school party are next on the menu. She begins to look for the bus driver when she is ambushed by a man called Hog, who has been eating them. They fight and she beats him easily, nearly killing the man until the children tell us to stop. And the issue ends with her staying with the children until the police arrive. Random Encounters is a descriptive short story with a few art panels. It tells the tale of Montoya, who has saved Two-Face, and the passing people in her district are angry with her for doing so. However, she meets her brother Benny and they discuss his life and Montoya killing someone. They then discuss why Benny has come home, and it turns out he was shot at on a mission in the desert and wounded in the process. And he has now come home suffering PTS, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Robin opens with Tim having guns pointed at him by some soldiers as he tries to visit Ariana. However, he is told that there is a gas leak and so can't go on to the house, but is instead told that all the residents will move to a local school. However, he decides not to visit them. So instead he returns home where his dad has tried to employ some builders to fix his house. However, Tim thinks he's being scammed and that they won't show. We then cut to Tim as Robin, who has turned up to keep an eye on Ariana at the local school. However, just a few beds over is Steph, who Tim has been having an on-off fling with, which was the cause of him and Ariana breaking up and is uncovered in the first few issues of the Robin series. He throws a batarang and she comes out. She tells him about her dad, Clue Master, escaping and tells Tim to go to her home because she needs her spoiler costume. Tim does so, but surprise, surprise, Clue Master is at the house. However, before they can talk, they are interrupted by the soldiers who attack both of them. Clue Master also snatches Spoiler's costume as well as they escape. They fight and Robin retrieves the costume, whilst the soldiers target only Clue Master because of his orange costume, which is brighter and easier to see in the dark. Robin returns the costume and also spots the men who conned his father and retrieves his money for him. And the issue ends with Ariana stopping by Tim's house and they make up, with Tim swearing that nothing will break them up, but behind him on the back seat is a spoiler costume. So I'll start with Batman Chronicles. I thought that this was a lot better than the issue for Cataclysm. This showed a bit more of Ruin Gotham and it was nice to get some focus on other characters other than Batman and to see how they've been affected by the events of Cataclysm as well. The artwork was nice for all three stories, and I particularly liked the ruined Wayne Manor. I think the best story was the Huntress storyline, really. We saw an emotional Hella and one who cares about others, and in a situation that is tied into her school teaching well and was a personal storyline. I felt that the weakest was the Montoya and Benny storyline, whilst I do admire the message behind it, and I think the attempt to talk about post-traumatic stress syndrome when no one else was really talking about it, nor was there any real help for it, is a really brave thing to do. But I didn't enjoy the style in which it was told. This was done by a short story with illustrations. It was very descriptive, and it was almost all words. 
Now, I read avidly, and but I just don't think that kind of style really fits into a comic. I think that, that personally, this would have been much more affecting to have seen it done with picture panels, and maybe just a few words said between them. Really, sometimes a picture can say a thousand words, and I think this would have been a much more effective way to tell the storyline. Therefore, I'm going to give this issue three and a half out of five batarangs. I like the Robin storyline a lot, actually. I thought it was really, really good. It was nice to see the continuation of a storyline inside Gotham, and that the characters have to deal with that as well as the continuation of the story. It isn't a standalone issue, and you do need to have read the other issues to really understand what was going on, but I like that, and that's kind of what I was hoping for with the rest of the Batman storylines in the Aftershock series, that they would pick up where the issues before Cataclysm had left off, and we'd get a continuation of the story all the way through. I think out of everyone, Chuck Dixon really had worked out what he was going to do with the story, what he was going to do with the characters, and how they'd be affected by Cataclysm and the events afterwards. And that's something that really shows through in both of the series that he writes, both Detective and Robin. And I think overall, he's definitely been the strongest author out of all of them. Although, I think an honourable mention must go to Alan Grant. And honestly, I would say it would be quite nice if he came back to DC. I'd love to see him writing Teen Titans, or given the Red Robin series, which DC have made noises about coming out. I'm going to give this 4 out of 5 Batarangs. So that's it. That's everything for Batman Aftershock. Next episode, we will be covering Batman the Road to No Man's Land, and we'll be covering the first six issues of that, followed by the final five issues next time. Don't forget, if you want more DVD extras, such as listener Q&A, do go over and subscribe to the Bat Books for Beginners main feed, and you'll get treated to a wealth of DVD extras on there. So that's it for this episode, and now I'm going to hand you back over to Dustin and the guys. Thanks very much for listening. Alright, so that was Bat Books for Beginners. Make sure you are checking out the Bat Books for Beginners feed over on the website for an extended version of Bat Bat Books for Beginners including some of the listener comments from some of the books that John is currently covering. All right, so that is going to bring us straight into our listener Q&As. We only have a couple comments over on the website, and we have one email that we're going to go over. As far as comments on episode number 112, Alex says, Great podcast, guys. The reason I am still reading back on Red Hood is because I'm hoping they'll get better. I'm a big fan of Marv Wolfman's New Teen Titans, and Starfire was my favorite character. So now that I saw how butchered she was, I have to see some redemption. Like I said, I only just picked them up because of Death of the Family and was hoping to see the repercussions of the story. So far, I put them both at a 3 out of 5 Batarangs. I even picked up the last Teen Titans issue, which was bad, but I had to finish the Death of the Family story. I'm also still reading Superman, and it's been terrible, but I'm still hoping it gets better. I see things through. I'm like the captain. I go down with the ship. As for my ratings for the issues, Detective Comics number 18, 4 out of 5. I've been really liking Detective Comics lately. However, I always forget what happened in the issue until I hear your reviews. I completely forgot about Zaz, and you guys remind me 
how much I really liked it. Batman number 18, three and a half out of five. Batgirl number 18, three out of five. Batman Robin number 18, five out of five. The first issue I read multiple times on release. It's the best issue of the year. The Throning Batman and Robin annual number one is my favorite. I never felt sad while reading a comic and it really hit me because it felt so sudden in Batman Incorporated. Damien's death didn't really sink in until I read this issue. And I would say, I I would agree completely, and I think we all agree completely as far as Batman and Robin number 18 being the top issue to beat of 2013 so far. Then Alex responded back a couple days later and said, I was curious on what is all of your favorite genre and mood of a Batman story. Because of your Fantastic Robin special, I read a lot of the old Batman stories and it rejuvenated a lot of my love for the character. When I was reading the Jason Todd era of Robin, I was surprised to see how much Batman smiled. Jim Starlin wrote a very dark detective story dealing with rape, meanwhile having Batman struggling with trying to guide Jason to a moral path. No matter how dark the story seemed, he wrote Batman who smiled and was friendly to civilians. He comforted people who were hurting and showed various moments of compassion. Lately, it seems like a lot of writers are trying to push Batman that is more socially awkward and kind of a jerk. Comparing the different eras at times, it seems how dark Batman character has been written lately is silly. One of my favorite moments of the New 52 was in Batman the Dark Knight number 10, where Batman is trying to question Claire about who kidnapped her, but ends up just sitting beside her to comfort her because she was so frightened. Moments like that remind me why Batman is my all-time favorite character. I really value your opinions. Thanks. So, favorite genre and mood of the Batman story. I can say I can't stand the horror elements of the Batman stuff. <laughs> uh, anything Steve Niles, Kelly Jones, any of that stuff, I, <laughs> I completely despise all of that stuff. I do think that it is important for Batman to have those those moments with the civilians. I think that is something that's that makes the characters so much more than just you know the the brooding detective that is the the legend and not so much the symbol i think that batman really needs to be the symbol for hope and not just the legend of fear that's that's instilled in all of the the villains and the bad people of the world i think that it's also i think that batman needs to be a symbol for hope more so than anything else so i also really enjoyed that scene where batman talks to the girl who was being held captive by the penguin or by the Scarecrow, I should say, Penguin. I can't imagine why I thought it was the Penguin for a second there, maybe because Penguin's in every uh. book. But anyway, I do think it's important. I think it's also, I mean, there was that odd exchange a couple issues ago where Batman saves the girl, and the girl's kind of like fawning over Batman, and Batman's like, I don't have time for this, and he takes off. And that was a little bit awkward, but it's important for Batman to have some sort of interaction with the civilians because it makes the civilians have that hope. And honestly, if you live in Gotham, if you don't have hope, you're probably either going to kill yourself or you're going to move out of the city because there's not a whole lot of reasons to stay. So I think that Batman is that symbol for hope that the the citizens really need to see, even though we don't see it nearly as much as we should in the New 52. First of all, thank you very much for liking the Robin special. I appreciate that. And thanks in general, Alex, as I know you comment most frequently you and Kevin, the other guys on our, on our episode, so it shows that you're listening. And we appreciate your comments and your opinions and your gracious thoughts to our what we put out there. <laughs> this is a very pandering question. I'm like Dustin. It's not so much that I, that I mind the horror stuff. It depends on how it's written. I really don't like Batman being written so gothically emo 
that he's antisocial and you know not even his not even his his own partners like you know like talking to him and you know he can't relate to social people he can't you know he doesn't know how to smile you know he's so Batman twenty four seven because to me that's such a lazy facile stupid idea because I'm like sort of like kind of quote Grant Morrison that like to be Batman you know. It's his way of getting all of his anger and, you know, angst out. You know, him helping people is why he became Batman. He became Batman not to just, you know, because my parents are dead. It's because he needs to help people to prevent what happened to him from happening to anybody else. That's why he willingly adopted Dick Grayson and made him Robin. That's why he wanted to adopt Jason Todd. Yeah, yeah, you know, there's times where he's he's reluctant to work with a partner and he thinks he's the best at what he does. But he is open to the idea of, you know, fighting crime and helping people. So, I mean, there, there are times and places for the paranoid Batman. Like, you know, you can do it in after Identity Crisis, where he does Brother Eye. You can do it during Bruce Wayne Murderer and Fugitive, where that's actually a plot point, where, where he needs to come out different from the end of that. But you can't have that be the basic status quo for the character, because to me, that's out of character. That doesn't make sense for his supporting cast. That, that doesn't make sense for the history of the character. My favorite kind of Batman story is anywhere it just shows the, psych- the psychology of Bruce Wayne and the multiple facets of Bruce Wayne's psychology, you know, whether it's the light stuff or the dark stuff, as long as he's being a very versatile detective. I'm not a big fan of, you know, him being so invulnerable that he's perfect, but I do like it when it shows, you know, reasonable intelligence he can kind of get out of anything. Like in Batman R.I.P. when he got out of that coffin, that was awesome. And, you know, I like a good Batman and Robin story or a good Batman and Batgirl story or any story where he's working with his partners. I find that a lot of fun. And I like Batman being versatile in a lot of different types of stories in general. Yeah, I think I like, I, I like most interpretations of Batman. I think, surprise, surprise, my favorite is probably Grant Morrison's before the New 52, but when he came back, when he was just slightly more lighthearted and he was willing to have, he was willing to smile while he was punching and saying villains in the face. And I like that interpretation where it's not all like like Don was saying, where it's not all emo and doom and gloom. I, I occasionally, although it can get boring, I do occasionally like the Batman who just knows instantly he's worked out every single scenario so you'll never get anything past him because he'll have worked out everything in every possible way that something could turn out. But that I mean that can get boring after a while but it, it's fun to read for the odd story. I, I love Dick Grayson as Batman. He was the first Batman that I really read in comics, and that was a great interpretation of the character. So, I guess I agree with Dustin that I don't necessarily like the horror elements in that I don't like zombies and stuff so much in my Batman comics, but I love Kelly Jones' artwork, so I've started collecting all the ones where Kelly Jones draws Dead Man and Batman and things like that, so I love those sort of stories. When I know uh, John doesn't like Doug Munch or yeah. Monk or have you pronounced his name? Doug but, Mench. Uh, Mench, yeah. But uh, I like his work with Kelly Jones, so I've been trying to track down as many of those issues as I can. I guess the gothic and sort of that macabre stuff, in my opinion, doesn't really have a place in Batman per se, but I think especially with Batwoman, that's just sort of where I associate it with so if I find it in Batwoman, it's not really going to bother me. It'll seem out of place if I see it anywhere else. So hopefully the story is good enough. All right. And then the last thing we have is an email that was sent over on 
to podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. And it's from Brad from Canada. And he says, hello, I just wanted to let you know I really enjoyed your recent episode where you discussed the various Robins of the Batman hey. universe. I look forward to future episodes of Ranking. I followed Batman and his entourage for about 25 years. So I always enjoyed listening to podcasts that deal with bad history like a trip down memory lane. On that note, please tell Tom I said congrats on moving Taking Flight over to your site and expanding the past original miniseries he intended to be it. It's a great podcast he put together. Quick question. Before introducing each Robin, you played a soundbite with that particular Robin. Some I recognize from various cartoons and animated movies, but where did you get the soundbites for Steph and Damien? Are they from audio dramas? If they are, are they worth checking out? Once again, thanks for all the hard work. Everyone at TVU does to provide us with great articles and podcasts. Cheers, Brad from Canada. So Don, who edited and came up with the idea of the podcast, where did you get those sound bites? Well, it's funny you should say that, Justin. <laughs> Actually, um, the, they were done from a various amount of animated series. I, I have the entire animated, DC animated universe on DVD and some of the movies. I'll answer your, um, your, your questions first and then I'll elaborate on some others. The Stephanie Brown one, because she only has like one line in Young Justice, I once went with that, but that was from the first episode of the Batgirl Spoiled Web Series. And the Damien one, which was from an episode called Nights of Tomorrow from the Batman Brave and the Bold series, where they actually did a take on Dick and Damien as Batman and Robin. Just in case anybody else is wondering, like most of the other ones were done from the DC Animated Universe with Dick and Tim. The Jason Todd one was, the main one was done from the Batman Under the Red Hood DVD, but also, the death sequence between him and the Joker was done from the Robin Legend of Hero or something like that uh, audio drama where indeed Mark Hamill voiced the Joker, which was pretty awesome. So I wanted to include that. And to answer is, is uh, those worth checking out? I would say personally for me, they are worth checking out. Don, you should probably just give the names of those audio dramas one more time for them to check out. It's called Legends of Robin. It's a, it's a four part audio drama. Okay. So you can check that out. And then the, Batgirl Spoiled that he was talking about, that is an online web series that you can check out online as well, and that's also worth checking out as well. So that is all of our listener Q&As for this episode. Please be sure to send your Q&As to podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net or leave them in the comment section below the actual episodes so that we can read those on the next podcast. In addition to that, if you are listening to this, it is the beginning of April, so we have posted our TBU wedding special, and hopefully at this point you have found out that it was actually just a giant April Fool's joke that we were running for a long period of time. If not, sorry, I spoiled it, but you may have figured it out just for the sheer fact that we normally don't post podcasts on any day but Friday, and that posted on a Monday. So... Unfortunately, even though everyone and their brother wanted to congratulate Stella and Don, we were actually just tricking everyone leading up to this April Fool's prank that Mr. John from the normal podcast planned. So if you <clears throat> are quite upset by that, be sure to send him the hate mail podcast at net, <laughs> specifically directed to John, and we will be sure to forward that along. Happily to doing so. All right, so with that, that is everything for this episode. Be sure to check out everything we have to offer on the website, including news related to movies, merchandise, TV, video games, general news, and, of course, the comics as well. 
Also check out all the editorials that we have to offer. There's a couple of upcoming things. Stella, do you want to tell them what's coming out on PBS in just a couple of weeks? Well, yeah, coming out on PBS on April 15th, 10 p.m. It's a Monday. Uh, It's called Wonder Women. And it's basically a historical look at Wonder Woman, really starting from the 1940s and moving into present day. But it's not only about Wonder Woman, but about females in general in comics. It's just that Wonder Woman is sort of the main focal point. And it's a really well done independent documentary. It not only links Wonder Woman with history, but also with the rise of, of females and feminism and sort of the, the social issues that we've had along the way. And then also connects it with sort of the rise of females in popular culture today. So you've got, you know, Buffy and you have Sarah Connor from Terminator and things like that. And, you know, certainly it, it is a lot of yay you know, we'll get how far women have come, but it's definitely, it, it wouldn't turn anyone off, you know. It's not like heavy feminist or anything, but it's great to see how Wonder Woman changed in all of these eras, what was going on at the time, like how is Wonder Woman different pre-World War II when women were actually in factories and making, and then how did Wonder Woman change when the men came home and there was sort of a, direct, a drastic change. And the filmmakers also talk to real-life people and really get an insight of why do they like Wonder Woman. And I think that's almost the best part is seeing what's so great about Wonder Woman, but through these these great people's lives. So it's a, it was an hour long, but I was captivated the entire time. I thought it was really well done. And I'm not, you know, a big Wonder Woman fan, so I wasn't sure what to expect. But I certainly have increased in my my respect and admiration for the character and i certainly learned a lot it was really well done all right so you can be sure to check out stella's review over on the website the day before it actually airs and again it airs on april 15th on pbs check your local listings for the actual time just to be sure that it is in fact 10 p.m otherwise you can read stella's review over on the website on april 14th we will be posting that up so that you can check out her review just to get a little bit more interested in it in case you are uh looking for a little bit more of a reason to actually watch it on april 15th in addition to that you can also check out all the other podcasts we have over on the website including taking flight a podcast that deals specifically with the history of the robins Backroll Oracle is also located on the BatmanUniverse.net as well. All of the previous episodes and future episodes that Stella will be producing, focusing on Barbara Gordon's career as Backroll and Oracle, you can check out that, as well as a number of different specials, and we have some new commentaries that we'll be posting this month in April as well. So be sure to check out everything we have to offer, and you can always leave us reviews on iTunes, Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, and check out our Facebook group to chat with all the other Bat fans about everything happening within the Batman universe. Email us, podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net, and leave the comments in the comment section below the episode. That is everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is Donovan. This is Jay. This is Stella. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Take care, everybody.
uh, why wasn't I invited to this polyamorous wedding then? Polyamorous. Uh, you were there. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, I mean, I wasn't involved in this. I mean, I would have worn a much nicer suit otherwise. Well, you know, I don't know. Some of these weddings are a, little, a bit, you know, how old are you again? They're eighteen and up, so only, the, only the, the grown and sexy are allowed. I'm nineteen. <laughs> well, <laughs> wow. But not sexy, so. Color me embarrassed. 